Dr. Michael Roizen. Dr. Michael Roizen. You, the Owner's Manual Radio Show. We have a great guest for you today on the B segment. This is 1100B of You, the Owner's Manual Radio Podcast. I'm Mike Roizen, your host. And our guest today wrote the book, First Patients. Um, his name, he's a physician, is Dr. Rod Tanchanko, C-H-A-T-A-N-C-H-A-N-C-O. And I'm going to let him tell you and describe what he means by first patients. To get copy of the book, go to um, first-patients, with an S, dot com, first patients.com. And if I've gotten that wrong, uh, Dr. Tanchenko, please correct me. Um, the book is a wonderful set of stories, but I'm going to let uh, Dr. Tanchenko tell you what it's all about as soon as I remind you that our, our um, podcast is sponsored by Life's First Naturals, lifefirstnaturals.com the makers of bovine colostrum and True Biotics. They have on their website the data from randomized control trials that they help sponsor on the entities where these are especially useful, such as uh, the Italian soccer player study and upper respiratory infections um, that athletes get and how that was decreased by the bovine colostrum for uh, 2,000 milligram tablets, absolutely, actually capsules, that the Italian soccer players took in a randomized double-blind crossover fashion. But you can go to the website, lifefirstnaturals.com, to find those data. In the meantime, Dr. Tanchenko, I love some of the stories in the book that I got a chance to read, such as the one about Dr. Beck and the defibrillator. Um, I had learned from uh, Paul Zoll, who was one of my attendings in internal medicine, um, on about um, the first pacemaker, but this is really about the first defibrillator, and since I'm in Cleveland, um, I'm close to the, the site of that. I'm actually... Lakewood Hospital is one of the Cleveland Clinic hospitals, or was one. It's now a smaller hospital. It's now a um, called uh, Avon Hospital. Um, but in any case, um, I am uh, part of that system. So tell us about Dr. Beck. Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, thanks for having me. It's really an honor for me to be in your show, Dr. Royzen. And... Uh, yeah, um, I, I think uh, in your introduction you said you, you want to you know, tell me about about the book and what it's about. Uh, so just briefly, it's uh, the, the main idea is really just to uh, show uh, some stories which kind of emphasize a little bit or show some personal narratives and sort of the backstories to some of these uh, some of these medical milestones uh, in the history of medicine. So. You know, I tried to look at what was it like, you know, to be maybe that patient or the doctor or both, you know, caught in a medical crisis and led to some sort of medical discovery or innovation. And there's always some personal and backstories to that. Um, so 
not a you know, not a technical look, but more of a personal look into that. So that's sort of the backdrop. Um, the story about the uh, Dr. Beck and the defibrillation. The uh, first of all, the the theme of uh, first patients is because you know maybe it's the first patient who went through this, uh, or the uh, in co- you know in, in conjunction obviously with the doctors or the scientists uh, who they work with. Um, now the defibrillation is uh, story is about the first successful defibrillation of a patient um, using what else a defibrillator, which at that time this was in 1940, early 1940s uh, in in Cleveland, um, using a really a very rudimentary device. Basically, it's a it's a wooden box with a couple of paddles, and it delivered. Uh, uh, electrical, you know, electricity, basically a shock. Um, and he had, uh, if you look at the pictures of that, uh, of that box, you know, very simple, it's just uh, one dial and uh, a three by five index card taped to it with instructions, basically <laughs> on how to set it and so forth. And essentially say, you know, ask the doctor how to, how to set it and how much, where to place it and so forth. Um, but he developed it. And that was the total instructions on that the box. Was, yeah. It was pretty simple. It was written on uh, two three-by-five cards, I think you said. Yes, yes, exactly. Uh, taped to the box. And, uh, you know, there's a flip lid on the top where you keep the paddles and you plug it into the wall. And uh, I guess, uh, and then, uh, and it's, this is applied, this defibrillator is a... Um, Used in surgery, so it's not like our uh, modern defibrillators now. That's ubiquitous in uh, every corner in the in in airports. You see one, right? That's very easy to use and so forth. This one is used in surgery, so it's uh, meant to be placed directly on the heart uh, to shock the heart during surgery if it goes into uh, arrest or uh, uh, atrial or uh, ventricular fibrillation. But he, the because um, he, you know, Doctor Beck was pretty much a uh, one of the uh, major pioneers in cardiac surgery. He also happened to be a neurosurgeon, and I think he was the first professor of uh, cardiac surgery uh, in the U.S. So he was an innovator and he was a pioneer in that era. Obviously, d- d- doing a lot of uh, cardiac surgery, um, and inevitably they would have these. Uh, uh, events of uh, cardiac arrest or uh, people arresting during surgery, and the only way to uh, treat that was obviously to try to shock the uh, heart back in place. Um, now it was very crude at that point, um, and he had a very interesting experience when he was still training uh, as a medical student. He was uh, in an operating room, and that thing happened. Basically, the surgeons were operating, doing some cardiac surgery. And uh, or I, I'm not sure if it, if it was even cardiac surgery, some sort of surgery, and the patient went into arrest. And to his surprise, uh, and this was in the in the 1920s, um, the surgeons uh, went to the phone and called the, um, uh, the 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 firefighters, pretty much. Um, so they they didn't have any devices of their own, so they had to call the the uh, firefighters. Uh, to come in and bring a special device called the pull motor, uh, which is really more of a respiratory uh, device to try to revive the patient. And that kind of stuck with him. And he said, you know, there got to be a better way and so forth. So uh, later on in his career, he worked with uh, 
another pioneer, the, Dr. Wiggers, who was an electrophysiologist uh, uh, doing uh, early work on the defibrillators, so, and that's how they developed it. And um, and uh, and in this particular story, they were working on a, on a teenager who had a uh, flail chest. So basically, it's like a um, you know the what do you call that? Uh, it's a caved-in chest. So it was pressing the heart and the lungs uh, severely, so compromising the uh, the, uh, the the heart and the uh, respiratory uh, uh, function of that uh, teenager. So they wanted to correct that, and um, in doing so, uh, to, everything was going well. And then towards the end, uh, the teenager did go into ventricular fibrillation, and so they went on this uh, one-hour really uh, attempt to try to revive that uh, patient using uh, his uh, experimental device. And they tried everything, meaning they tried all the drugs that were common in that era and that are still used today. And uh, they they did everything they knew um, and they did it for an hour, which is impressive. And then they brought in the defibrillator. Now, the interesting story is the from modern today, when we do a drug trial on a patient um, that is, uh, n- or a, even a device that's new, you get the patient's permission, you go through a informed consent. There was no informed consent. The patient was going to die without it. Um, and even today, we don't use solutions from the laboratory without giving informed consent, even if they're going to die. But this was a before that era um, of, of uh, and you can see why, because people would use all kinds of devices that were unproven um, and cause more harm than good. And in fact, um, we'll come back to one of those other stories in a second. But in fact, so they used this device and he lived to, he was a teenager, I think you said age 14 at this time. I think he lived to age 44. He had a, the reason for his caved in chest, if you will, was a condition called Marfan syndrome, which um, is common to have these long arms and legs and sometimes is associated with a caved-in chest. We think many of the basketball players of um, the era have a form of Marfan syndrome as they have longer arms um, and legs than appropriate for their torso size. Um, but the when did, and so this is a patient who um, didn't have a trial. Now, one of the stories you don't have in here um, and it's a, it's a really fun book. It's called First Patients, um, and uh, the author is, of course, Dr. Rod Tanchanto, T-A-N-C-H-A-N-C-O, um, who is an internist as well. Um, but it's a smooth, wonderfully written book. But one of the stories that you don't have in there is of the first gene transplant, that is an attempt at, at doing gene editing. And one of the first ones resulted in uh, the patient not surviving. Um, and so, um, 
even though that patient had been given, it was a child again, and I can't remember the disease whether, um, but the, I know the physician was uh, extremely distraught over the patient's uh, response, um, but that he was the first patient for that attempted gene um, editing. That was in, I think, 1992 or 1993, um, and the first successful ones of these have been done recently in this year or last year or the year before, if you will, of gene editing in humans where they did both amyloid heart disease and they also have been working on uh, cystic fibrosis and also on uh, hemoglobin S or uh, sickle cell disease. Sickle cell, yes. Um, yes. So, um, but when did the the informed consent come in, and how has that changed the first patients? Well, um, the informed consent is a relatively new invention, unfortunately, uh, and in most of these stories, there is no. Uh, involvement of uh, or use and informed consent because um, classically or you know historically it's been an implicit agreement between doctor and patient you know that uh, that uh, and usually it's in a, in a in a setting of treatment pretty much that uh, that you would try something new because there's nothing else out there and so forth to try and uh, help uh, the patient. So there's sort of an implicit agreement between doctor and patient and trust and that the, that the doctor would actually follow, you know, the Hippocratic Oath to do no harm and so forth and, and so on. It, it, it didn't always work that way, and obviously there's some ethical uh, questions and concerns with that. But um, uh, interestingly, the first use of uh, the idea of the informed consent was maybe in the in, in it's one of the, in one of the stories in the book also in the yellow fever story in the US army doctors who were working in Cuba to find the source or the vector for uh, yellow fever because they were trying to find out if where it was coming from whether the mosquitoes were giving it and uh, it that was what is reported to be the first uh, in, formal informed consent that was used one teacher just to tell the uh, the volunteers what they were, you know, going to go through, and uh, it also spelled out a little bit about the compensation uh, and so forth. So, but very simple, and it's more of a, uh, you know, to protect them legally, pretty much, uh, which is still one of the reasons for informed consent. But, um, but after that, it's really a, a big gap. And I think uh, more focus came into it maybe after World War II, you know, starting maybe with the Nuremberg trials, you know, with the Nazi experiments and the Nuremberg Code, and then it the more emphasis and it became more robust with uh, developing guidelines uh, as far as protection of human subjects in human research. So in the early 1960s, there was another... A uh, big uh, guide that came out, came, which was known as the Declaration of Helsinki, which has a guideline for protection of human participants, you know, in research. And then a little bit later on, maybe in the late 70s, you have now uh, this thing called the Belmont Report, which has uh, spelled out some more ethical principles and guidelines. And, and that one had more specific uh, guidelines as far as informed consent. 
and also other things like protecting uh, vulnerable populations uh, and making sure that uh, the any research is done for has this concept called beneficence, which means uh, that it actually does not do harm or does little harm and the benefits are actually outweigh the risks. So that kind of thing. So it, it kind of evolves. So relatively recent, right? And then, as you know, we have now these uh, more international guidelines with the good clinical practices and uh, some international harmonization uh, guidelines, uh, which has a very robust and very in-depth and extensive uh, guidelines as far as uh, informed consent process uh, is concerned now in clinical trials. As you can tell, Dr. Tan Chanso, and I'm sorry, Rod, I'm mispronouncing the name. It's T-A-N-C-H-A-N-C-O, has a incredible knowledge. Um, what you don't get from this conversation is how wonderful this book is written and how well um, he conveys these stories. Um, you probably didn't get what I got from my uh, first English teacher, which is it's a good thing you're going into medicine because you'd never survive other than that because he writes beautifully. Um, and the book is called first-patients.com is where you can find it. The book is called First Patients, um, and it is wonderful. I don't know who the first patient is who received bovine colostrum in a purified fashion or who got true biotics, um, but my guess is they were tested extensively before the first patient got them in animals and then did informed consent. That's the common thing since the Kennedy-Kefauver amendments to the uh, Food and Drug Act, um, which I think was in the early 80s. Um, what we did in the, and, and just to give one more, two more quick stories because they involve us, what we used to do at the University of California, San Francisco, when I was training before the 80s, and our junior faculty member, is we always had the pri principal investigator of any drug trial was, in fact, the first patient for that trial. So you always, if you weren't unwilling to do it on yourself, um, then you didn't do it. It had to be safe enough for you to feel you could do that drug trial or that experiment on yourself. We don't do that anymore, unfortunately, now. Um, the second uh, story that I want to tell is Paul Zoll, who is really is all pacemaker company, um, is still one of the pioneers. He said he got the idea for the pacemaker when in World War II he was in the British theater um, and was assigned to a surgical unit. Um, when the shrapnel came down, one of the people um, who got uh, a heart problem and was thought had a, um, got shrapnel right through his chest uh, fell down and stopped breathing. He was with a cardiac surgeon who did a thoracotomy, opened the chest to get the heart beating. The heart was quiescent at that time, and Paul Zoll shuffles his feet. He shuffled on the rug. 
a spark went from his finger as he was told by asked by the surgeon to hold the hole in the heart that the surgeon was going to sew up. He was going to sew it around Paul Zoll's finger as you did um, to hold a hole in the heart so blood wouldn't come out and so he could sew it. As Paul shuffled over and put his finger on the hole, um, a spark went from his finger to the heart. It restarted the heart beating. And that patient actually, I was told, survived. And it was that spark that got Paul Zoll the, uh, was the first patient for the pacemaker. I don't know how ac apocryphal or not, but that was told to me by uh, Dr. Zoll himself. So thank you very much. And the book again is First Patients by Rod Tanchenko. Thanks again, Caitlin, for engineering, and thanks, of course, to Life's First Naturals, the makers of Truebiotics and um, Bovine Colostrum Tablets, for sponsoring this. We'll be back next week. This has been episode 1100 of You, the Owner's Manual podcast, Section B, the B's always great guests, the A's, the latest medical news of the week, and what it means to you. Thanks again.